When I was about 12, 13, uh, a movie came out called Raiders of the Lost Ark with famed archaeologist Indiana Jones. And I've read critiques. There's not really a plot. It's just watching him run around and have a lot of adventure. Um, But part of the plot of that movie was that the bad guys, the Nazis, were uh, trying to get a hold of the Ark of the Covenant, that thing you read about in the Bible where the presence of God once dwelled. And Indiana Jones tracks them down and and finds them, and he, as secular, as non-religious as he is, he knows better than to touch that thing or get too close to it. Uh, He uh, he knows it's, uh, there's a lot going on with it, um, the Ark of the Covenant. But not so uh, the Nazis who think it's, a, it's some way to get a lot of power for themselves. And uh, the, there's this scene near the end of the movie where they open that up. And there are stories in the Bible of people touching the Ark and falling dead. And Hollywood did its best to portray this um, you know, the, these spirits or angels or something pouring out of the Ark and it... it uh, destroys all those who had their eyes open looking at it. And it was terrifying, <laughs> terrifying to a 12-year-old uh, to see all that. Uh, and that was kind of their best take at depicting, uh, and, and not having the words to say this, but the holiness of God, the, the, just the awesome power of the presence of God. And, you know, it was fictionalized and, and a lot more. Um, But I thought of that when I read this morning's passage from Isaiah. Isaiah, a a prophet of God, a a preacher of his day, who had this vision. And it was, uh, I mean, it it put the Indiana Jones, the Raiders of the Lost Ark thing to shame. I mean, as you read it, there's this image of of God who, who you don't even really get the the description of God. There's just this huge throne that's high and lifted up uh, in this huge temple. The the train of God's robe fills everything and the the bulk of the description is on the uh, kind of the the seraphim, the specialized angels who uh, are in God's presence and even they, as as powerful and intimidating as they are, cover their their face, uh, their eyes, their, their feet, uh, because of being in God's presence. Um, and yet they go ahead and, and speak in praise of declaration of God's holiness, and they are terrifying, and they're just the, the watchers, right? When they speak, the, the thunder of their voice, I mean, think, I don't know if you've ever, um, kind of the old style of going to a jet plane was not through all the enclosed airport, but out on the runway, and just the the volume of those jet engines. That's what I think of when I think of uh, the, the seraphim thundering, holy, 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 because it was so loud and so powerful. Uh, the temple uh, was shaking on its foundations and smoke was filling the room and there's God on the throne and the train, all this going on. And on one level, it's, um, it's inspiring, but I, I think the, the most accurate word, if, if you had had the vision or you were there, would be terrifying or or awesome in the original sense of the word, like terrified awe kind of thing, right? And, and we, it really is right at the edge of what we can even imagine, but Isaiah is describing this scene to us. And yet, as you work your way through it, the point of this is not to answer questions like just how big was the throne and how much of the time is God sitting on the throne and 
you know, how, how long is the train of his robe that fills the temple? The, the point of this vision, this living, waking dream, was to try to convey the holiness of God. That one simple thing, that God is holy. And it, it to the point, and it says this in the passage, that it almost undoes Isaiah. Not just emotionally, but it's like he, he, you know, his molecules are coming apart, just to be in the sheer presence of God. So I want to talk this morning a little bit as we'll work through this passage about what it means that God is holy, what happened to Isaiah, what our response to God's holiness uh, should be, might be. Um, so I want to start with just that question of what is holiness. I asked this, where, where did I ask this? I don't know. Some, sometime this last week in talking about it, I said, what do you think of uh, when we think of God's holiness? And the person responded something like God's um, perfection, right? To be holy is to be perfect. And I was like, well, that, that, I guess that is a kind of a facet, a side of it. But what the word means is set apart or distinct, other, right? Unusual, not, not ordinary, extraordinary. And God, God is holy for any number of reasons. His power, his you know, knowledge, his, his justice, all that makes God, his love, all of that makes God entirely other. That's holy. And there's an intensity to it. And, and the best example I could, I could give of that is the sun and the, the heat and the energy from the sun. We, we often will equate God's holiness with wrath or anger or punishment, but it's not that at all, any more than the sun is angry at you or a fire or a hot stove is angry at you. It's just the nature of those things. Uh, to, it's just raw energy that is consuming. And, and just as you would be foolish, NASA would be foolish to fire a, you know, a manned rocket into the sun, it is uh, foolish. We should at least be guarded when we think about being in the presence of God. The sun would just consume the rocket and the people there, and not because the sun hated them or was angry or vengeful, but because the sun is pure energy, heat. And to think of a sun without those qualities, sometimes we want to do that to God, right? Just kind of take away that bit and keep the, the fun, lovey bits. The sun wouldn't be the sun anymore, and in fact, we would die without the heat and the energy of the sun. So the holiness of God is this distinctness, except curiously, we're created in God's image, so there's something of that that resides in us. But God is the original holy one, is other, set apart, and distinct. And so these seraphim declare that. Uh, Eric talked about repeating lines of a song. As you look elsewhere in scripture, they have about a, a two, sometimes a three-line song, but it always has that one line, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the God of hosts. In Revelation, when you see the songs of heaven, that's in there every time. It's a very simple because it, it's naming who God is and declaring it. Um, there's a, a fairly well-known uh, teaching and sermon from back when I was in college where R.C. Sproul talks about the, the repetition of the word holy. And, and we've talked about this before, that the Hebrew people would repeat things to emphasize them. That normally just meant repeating something once. 
So to say God is holy, holy would be like us underlying it or putting it in caps. But it's rare um, to find something repeated three times. That's just like using all the things on your computer at once. My dad does that sometimes when he e emails me. Um, it'll be bold, italic, underlined, yellow, highlighted, all at once. That's, that's what's going on here. It's like there is no more holiness than we can say about God being holy, holy, holy. So God is that. And just when you think, well, if he's that distinct, that other, we can't know him at all, right? The second line of the seraph's song is that the whole earth is full of his glory. We talked about this some the last two weeks. That just as God made us in his image, there is something of God's character in the world that he has created. Right? There's something of God's glory, just as a, you know, an artist or a composer, a painter, their work tells you something about them. It reflects something of their creativity, their, their genius. God's handiwork shows forth his glory, and it's in the song. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's not God. The earth is not God. It's not pantheism, panentheism, but it displays the handiwork of God such that the Apostle Paul can say we're all accountable uh, for acknowledging there is a God because the, the created world around us shows us God has made this. There is someone behind this. It's because of the glory of God is in the whole earth. So just when you you start to really think about God's holiness and how could we ever know anything, God has chosen to show a bit of that to us so that we might see and know and be drawn to him. But in verse 5, Isaiah is having this vision and sees you know, the throne and the train and the seraphs speaking, singing this song, thundering this song, and it causes a reaction, a response from him. And it's, it's this. He says, woe is me, for I am undone. Woe is me, for I am undone. What is it that the, the, the sun-hot holiness of God does to us? It, it, it's like it threatens to unglue us. Not, again, because God is angry, but because it is so pure. I, you know, I, I don't have words other than holy. We, we, can't, we can't bear it other than God chooses to come to us. But Isaiah had the, the only response was it, you know, imagine him throwing himself on his face and just saying, I'm, I'm undone. I'm, you know, I'm unworthy. I'm sinful. I can't, I can't bear the, the purity, the heat of what's before me. The, so there is a, you may know the Old Testament was written in mostly Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. But there is one of our oldest, our oldest translation of the Old Testament is a Greek translation of it. Well, if you read the, that first uh, Greek translation of it, the word they use here for undone is pierced, like cut through to the heart. Um, that Isaiah, when he was before the, the vision of the holiness of God, not, not even in person, but the vision of God's holiness, it's like I'm pierced through to the bone. I'm undone. And a word that we put with that kind of piercing, that kind of undoing, is the word conviction. We are convicted, that is, we, we come to know the truth and the reality of who we are in the presence of a holy God. 
And what I want to highlight for you is that that conviction of, of seeing, experiencing God's presence, God's holiness, led him, convicted him, to do a certain thing, and that was to confess his sinfulness. So in the second part of verse 5, he has two confessions there. After the woe is me, I'm undone, I'm pierced, he has two confessions. He says, woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. He makes an individual confession of sin. And whether he was talking about, I don't think it was this, that he had a foul mouth, that's not what he meant. Um, I think he, he was just acknowledging that everything that comes out of my mouth is just falls short of God's purity and holiness. Maybe even getting at um, his, his calling, his existence as a prophet of God. You know, I'm supposed to be representing and speaking God's word and I, I fall short of that or I waffle or I, I turn to the left or the right. I am, I, I, my lips are not worthy of, of speaking the message of God. Whatever it is, he is confessing in the presence of God's holiness I am a sinful man. But that's not all. I grew up mostly thinking about sin as individual sin. What have I done wrong? But he also uh, makes a, a corporate confession of sin. He says, and I live among, I am one of a people of unclean lips. I belong to a whole, the whole people of Israel that has rebelled against God. And we are all people of unclean lips. And I think that easily expands to be an unclean hearts and minds and hands and actions. And indeed, if you keep reading his story, and that he doesn't, he isn't disintegrated on the spot. He goes on to preach a very strong message. The people, his people, Israel, have all rebelled against God, and his message is to go call them back to the Lord. He is counting himself as one of them at this point. And it, it reminds me that in the presence of a holy God, I am called to, if I truly understand who I am before God, it leads me, it leads us to confession of sin, both individual sin, sins I've committed, uh, things I haven't done that I should have done, and also corporate sin. We've talked about this a couple of weeks ago, um, that we live among a people of unclean lips and hearts, and whether that be sins of uh, racism or greed or idolatry, we are part of more than just what goes on in Robert's head and heart. And those are also sins we are to confess. And the Bible is full of both kinds of confession, individual confession and corporate confession. And Isaiah models that for us well in this moment. Again, if you stop there, you might think, well, he's a goner. He already knew he was undone. Now he's gone out and called out what he's done against God. But here's where holy doesn't equal angry or vengeful or destructive. What happens next? One of these seraphs, themselves terrifying creatures that belong to God, who are themselves burning with holiness out of being in the presence of God, they, they take, and this is so interesting to me, um, you can go to the next one, Mark. They take tongs, I didn't even know that was a Bible word, but they take tongs and take a burning coal from the, the altar that is there in the presence of God. And they come over to touch that burning coal to those unclean lips. And it purifies Isaiah of his sin, of his iniquity. So here's, here's the holy hope up here. That though God is completely other, holy, set apart from us, God has shown us himself 
right? The whole earth is full of his glory. But even more than that general revelation of himself, this is the gospel, he has come to us in mercy to forgive us, to cleanse us, using this image, to cleanse us with his own holiness, to cleanse our sin. And that image of the seraph bearing the the burning coal from the presence of God to touch Isaiah's lips and touch his sin, that is a picture of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Again, God who is holy and set apart and other, uh, who has shown us himself generally in the world around us, he has sent his son who is described in the New Testament as the, uh, the, the living glory of God, right, has sent him to us to forgive, to cleanse us of our sins. The same kind of imagery, God comes to us, even as he did to Isaiah, to offer us forgiveness and, and his own holiness. So I want to lift up to you as we begin this series on what is God like, I want to lift up that pattern to you, and it's one that isn't, you know, a lot of times we separate, oh, there's an Old Testament picture of God and there's a New Testament picture of God and they're different. I want to say they're the, they're the same. God is consistent throughout the pages of Scripture. God is holy. And in, you know, in the presence of that, that hot fire of holiness, we are undone in our human sinfulness and disobedience. But God's desire is not to annihilate us but to purify us and claim us as his own so he takes from himself and he comes to us to show us mercy to make us clean and we're not going to go this far today but to call us into service I mean the next thing in Isaiah is God having cleansed him says get up I have work for you to do and Isaiah says here I am send me it's more than we could pack in today but that's the pattern right God is holy we are convicted of our sin, our separation from God and God, and we, and we confess that before God. We are open to God and God comes to us in Christ to make us holy and then to call us into service. That is the good news of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. That is God's good news for us. So my prayer for us is one that the apostle Paul prayed is God open our eyes that we might see you for who you are in your holiness and in your generous compassion and love to come to one such as us who, who should be and, un, and are undone in your presence and yet whom you make clean, make pure, make holy and call into your service. That is good news indeed. Amen and amen.